Hello, welcome to Making Web Apps Badly. This is an unedited stream of consciousness podcast on how to make web apps if your goal was to get 50% of the revenue, 50% of the customers, 50% of the quality of the code as you would get uh, if you, you know, really put your all into it. So with that in mind, uh, you might be wondering why? Why would you ever aim for 50%? Well, the reason is because uh, you are a solo developer or you are working on a small team and you don't have enough time to spend to make a web app 100%. When When you're Google or Facebook or, you know, some other big agency or company or whatever, you can invest the time and resources of a full team uh, to research the market, to design the product, to make sure that everything is performing well on mobile, on desktop, you know, everything, right? But when you're a small team or a solo developer like me, you don't really have the time. Time is a precious resource and even if you did have the time, switching contexts is actually really demanding on your brain. So you want to try to switch contexts as little as possible and just focus on one thing at a time. And also, if you're a solo developer, you need to be spending more than 50% of your time on sales and marketing, getting the word out there, telling people about your product. And the reason you have to spend more than 50% and not just 50% is because you're a developer. So you're really bad at it. You're not, you're not an expert in marketing or sales. So it's going to take you more time and effort to have the same effect as someone who's really good at it. So you need to invest more time, probably even more than 60 or 70% of your time doing it. Uh, because, you know, you can accomplish a lot in the 30% for the development, but for, uh, you know, more than a lot of other people could, because you're a developer. Um, But yeah, I think I've made that point. So, anyways, what does building web apps badly look like? Well, in the simplest example I can think of, It's starting a web app with the framework you know, whether that's PHP and Laravel or Ruby on Rails or, you know, some Node.js backend. But whatever you know, whatever you're already comfortable with, and ideally you can just type in a few commands and have an app going, have the controller built out, have the models automatically generated, and The front end is built all in something like Bootstrap. And you may be wondering, well, there's all kinds of Bootstrap themes. Should I use one of those? Or I've heard a lot about Material UI lately. And I'm just going to say up front, I think that's part of the decision that you have to make to not make decisions (laughs) and to just go with Bootstrap. So in the simple example, simplest example, building a web app badly is getting set up with Bootstrap and let's say Ruby on Rails 
having all of the code on the back end, none on the front end, pretend you don't know how to write JavaScript, and then when it comes to bootstrap and laying out the page, again, you're gonna pretend you don't know how to write CSS, and you're just going to put the page together using the bootstrap styles, the default bootstrap styles, make it responsive with the, boot, uh, the default bootstrap styles, and it's gonna be, this, in the simplest version, you're gonna have a form, and then you're gonna have some result of the form. So this is another part of building web apps badly. You uh, wanna take some input, you wanna do some magic with it, and then you wanna output some results. But you want to cut down on the <laughs> amount of steps that you're doing and the amount of magic that you're doing because you don't have the time for it. Um, so you wanna tackle problems that ideally can be solved in a few steps, uh, not in 10 steps. So you don't want multiple you know, user actions from multiple dashboards being you know, entered in to form some overall conglomeration that you know, makes them feel, <laughs> may, may, like gives them a really good um, you know, output. So like an example would be like, Google Analytics, right? You don't want to create like a tracking script that's gonna keep track of like a thousand or a hundred different variables and then put them in all different kinds of nice interfaces and charts or whatever. If you're building an analytics, the um, uh, platform, the, what you wanna be doing with that is just tracking one stat and showing that in a single chart. <laughs> and making sure, you know, that stat is, um, like you're highlighting that in a way that other people aren't highlighting it, or you're just bringing it up from the depths where like Google Analytics might hide it behind five screens. Your whole company might be saying, oh no, this is actually the most important stat. We wanna put that front and center. So instead of focusing on building something complicated so that you're having more features than Google Analytics, your um, startup or your, your little product is just saying, no, 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 we're just focusing on one thing and one thing only. It's kind of like the whole uh, 37 signals mantra of do less. Um, and you know, keep it keep it really simple. Uh, and I think you know, I'm I'm pretty much saying the same thing as the, as they are. Um, but I'm trying to learn it myself. And so I will. Yeah, sorry, that was some construction. I'm going to turn around and walk the other way. Um, so <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to learn the 37 signals mantra myself, as well as apply it to every level of the product development and design uh, process. Um, and the reason is, is because, like I said before, I'm a solo developer, and, but, but really it's from experience. So I've built several web apps at this point, and I thought each one would take off and do really, really well. <laughs> and uh, I somehow fell into the trap over and over again of not doing enough outreach 
or enough sales or enough marketing, even though with my latest attempt, uh, requestcreative.com, I hired uh, a marketing and branding agency to work with me. They helped me write an ebook. They helped me write content. Uh, they helped me design landing pages. And to tell you the truth, I got burned out. I barely finished the product because the development and the design work was way more than enough for me to take on. I never released any of the landing pages. Uh, the ebook is still not released. And so it's not their fault <laughs> by any means, but it's my fault for taking on too much. And I know you could be asking yourself right now, well, why are you working on a podcast instead of working on your ebook right now? Well, the truth is, is that uh, I'm in a break right now from working because I stressed myself out so much and got so anxious that I had no choice but to take a break. <laughs> and so right now I'm kind of in a more an exploratory phase. So anyways, um, let's get back to building web apps badly. Uh, but basically, since you have that context now, I think you can kind of understand why I might want to focus more on keeping the engineering and the design really light, especially since I have a lot more experience now building, you know, multiple products from scratch. Uh, I've worked for startups for the past eight or 10 years. Um, so I have a lot of experience building products. And I think if I use that experience and I really codify uh, some best practices around basically using shortcuts to get there quicker, um, I think I can make it so that I can build, you know, a product or, or you know, a page of a, web, of a web app much, much quicker than I could before. And then maybe I can actually fulfill my goal of uh, working on marketing and outreach and sales 70% of the time. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that, uh, about building web apps badly, because I want to encourage my mind to get into that setting where it's not really caring so much about making things perfect, thinking about, you know, front-end build processes and uh, floats and flexbox and uh, ES6. Like, I, don't, I want to get away from all that stuff. Um, and really focus on what is the minimum I can do to create um, a web app that's functional, that's secure, and that can recruit customers. And the goal here is not to build a terrible web app. <laughs> it is to build a 50% web app. Um, and again, that is, I'm trying to get, I'm aiming for 50% of the customers in revenue. It's not 50% of the design and development effort. I'm hoping it's more like 25% or even 10% of the design and development effort. Because if you look at a lot of startups out there right now, a lot of them are doing things very manually. A lot of them are founded even by people who don't know how to code. And so they're setting up landing pages they're filling out spreadsheets, 
and they're doing actual work for their customers before they get any funding, before they get any technical expertise on their team, and they're doing most of the work with, you know, out-of-the-box manual systems. Um, and, you know, they're becoming experts in Google Sheets or, or um, Zapier or other no-code tools. And so I'm thinking, you know, I have more experience than them uh, in terms of coding and technical stuff. So what if I could kind of do a switcheroo, you know, and become as good as at marketing as they are? Then I would have, you know, both things. And even if I was using, you know, no code tools or I was using, you know, a really light framework, I could, you know, be successful by, you know, recruiting enough clients to make uh, a web app take off. And the goal with, um, with using a framework at all instead of no code tools is that if I can automate, you know, 90% of what's happening, then maybe I can also short circuit the manual work of managing a spreadsheet and, you know, doing that, you know, kind of real work for the customers. Uh, you know, the things that don't scale. If I can short circuit that, then I can work on multiple projects at once instead of investing all my time into a single project that, you know, may or may not take off. So I don't know, that's kind of the dream. Anyways, this is, <laughs> that's a pretty long intro. Uh, sorry about that. So let's, um, let's talk about some of the things, some of the other things you can do to build a 50% web app. So let me give you uh, an example of something that I've, I've never done, but I think uh, could be a good idea. And it's kind of a, an example of, you know, maybe I wouldn't do this in practice, uh, but it, it's something that kind of elucidates the idea of something you would do in a 50% app. So if you know CSS, uh, you know that you have classes, and the classes apply certain styles to the page. And so if you have like a table or a form, uh, if you like click inside the form, you might have like, um, you know, an active class on the input, you know? So like if you're typing something into an input, that input might be selected with like a green border or something like that. Um, and if you click outside of it without typing in, you know, the information they want, they might show a red border so to show that it has an error. And those um, styles, those colors, are controlled by uh, CSS, specifically CSS classes. And so if you have a uh, component, like let's say it's a profile card, um, and so that has an image that has a person's name on it, and then it has like a little bio describing who that person is. And um, you want to show that that person is featured, so you want to add a little star to the top right corner of their picture. Something you could do is you would have like a CSS class called Profile, on the parent component, and then you could add another CSS 
class to it called profile dash dash featured. And that's using a, um, a practice called uh, BEM. It's like a, but anyways, you don't really need to know that. Um, the idea is that you're just adding an additional class. Um, and it's adding new styles to the profile. So, um, a lot of the time when you're, when you have a component, like the, you know, profile card, and you're trying to, I'm really sorry about this, this noise, oh my god. Um, yeah, there's like, sometimes busy streets around here, and then sometimes <laughs> they're like much calmer. And so I just walked towards this street that is usually not busy at this time, but it just happened to be right now. Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm not editing this podcast later. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Yeah, that's another thing. I'm cutting down on editing podcasts. Because honestly, that can take long... I mean, usually it takes about twice or three times as long as making the podcast itself. So um, <laughs> in terms of just like making a podcast, it doesn't make sense right now, even though you know, I'll probably get like 10% or 1% or even 0% of the listeners that I would have gotten otherwise. So um, that being said, uh, blah, blah, blah. What was I saying? So yeah, so you might have a component and then you add another class to it to, to, to give it a much different style. Um, so for example, the profile card, right? So let's go back to that. Uh, so it, it would just normally be called profile. If you wanted to make it featured, you would add a, uh, another thing. You'd say, it's, oh, it's profile featured. And then it would get the little star in the corner. So my idea is that um, sometimes you have components like that that massively change their styles. Uh, whenever, um, when something happens. So let me give you an example, a real world example from an app I've built. It's a timeline that is laid out horizontally. And then when you click on it, it's laid out vertically. And it also, uh, when it's laid out vertically, it's much larger and it has text next to each timeline item. And each timeline item has an icon. Whereas when it's collapsed horizontally, uh, everything, all the boxes of the timeline are right next to each other. They don't have an icon and they don't have text descriptions. So they're much different styles. So just like with the profile card, which might have you know the name profile when it's not featured, and the and the class profile featured when it's uh, when it's got the star, when it's featured. <coughs> when you have the timeline, you might have a regular class of timeline, and then when it's expanded, you would still have that regular class, but you would also add the class timeline expanded. And then underneath, and then inside of it, you would add all different new classes uh, or new styles when it was expanded. So you would, um, you know, say you would change the flexbox uh, alignment or whatever, uh, the flexbox layout from horizontal to column, 
um, uh, you would um, display uh, block on the uh, text items, and you would display block on the on all of the icons, and then you would probably have to do a few other things too, in order to adapt it to the new layout. And so my thought is, what if you had a class that you could add that would reset all of the styles of a component? So um, an example where uh, you, know, you might use this other than in this timeline uh, example is for a button or for like a text area. So like, geez. I don't know how much you missed there because I don't know if my low power message just interrupted this podcast. Man. Ah, oh, that's such a bother. Well, anyways, yeah, this podcast might have just been paused for like five minutes or two minutes because I had a low power message show up. So anyways, uh, I don't know if it was or not. Sorry if it was. So anyways, uh, you probably didn't miss very much. Um, <laughs> the, uh, what I was talking about is a profile card. And then I was talking about a timeline. And the timeline could be expanded or not. The profile card could be featured or not. And then I was talking about, okay, so when you're switching the styles between these items, a lot of the styles could change uh, depending on whether it's activated or not. And so you might want a class to reset all of the styles of the element and all of its children. And I was saying that you might use one of these reset classes uh, on like a form or a button because forms and buttons are two of the um, are two of the cases that browsers style uh, by default pretty heavily. So a button, um, you know, already has, you know, it's center aligned. Uh, it has some padding, I think. It has, um, <clears throat> it has, you know, like a, it looks like something, right? It has like that background gradient sometimes, or like a, a background color. Um, so in order to reset a button, usually you'll add a class to it or sometimes you'll add a class to it, uh, you know, if you're working with a CSS framework or something, and it will uh, reset all of the styles for you. So it'll give either a different uh, background color and, uh, you know, alignment and padding, or it will just remove them altogether. So it will remove the padding altogether. It will just make it look like a regular div. And so the idea is that, well, what if you had that for every type of element? So that um, for you know your profile card, or or better yet, for the timeline, when you're expanding it and you're adding all those different new classes, um, instead of having to switch them all over individually, you would just reset them uh, with this new class, um, and then you you would obviously have to you know, restyle everything, but you'd be starting with a blank slate, right? So basically, uh, what, I'm <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that how CSS normally works is that you have button A and button B, 
And when you want to style button B different than button A, a lot of the time you'll put the same class on both of them, and then you'll just overwrite the existing classes on A with the new classes on B, or new styles on B, um, you know, using a new class. And what I'm suggesting is that instead of that, you have, uh, you do that same thing, right? Except what if B didn't have to worry about the classes that were on A? So it could just start from scratch and do everything, um, you know, from scratch, right? So like, say you have button A and you style that with like a background color and you style that with a text alignment and you, you, you put a, a color on it and you put some padding on it. And then you add uh, some like a new class that's like reset styles and to B, to button B, and now you start over again. And so now you add padding and uh, margin and color and background color. And so instead of having to worry about that old button, you're just uh, making an, <laughs> a brand new one that's like totally from scratch, totally reset. And so you might be wondering like, okay, what, <laughs> what's the big deal about this idea? It doesn't sound like that big of an idea. Well, the idea is that if you could do that with a button, you could do that for the button's children, right? So using like the star selector. So the star selector in CSS, if it's used on an element, it's gonna select all of the child elements. And so what you could do is use this reset class um, with all of its reset, reset styles, you know, the margin, the padding, the box shadow, the Flexbox, whatever. You could use that on all the children too, uh, but automatically. So it would use the star selector to automatically re reset all the children too. And so what you could do is when you're building out a big component, you could add this reset class to the component before you start, you know, working on the, on the new layout for it. And so it would just create a blank slate for you. And uh, if you're wondering, well, am I actually applying this class directly into the HTML? Probably not. You're probably using something like SAS or some CSS variable, right? And then you're, um, and then you're extending the reset class inside of your new class. So you have class A and you have class B, and you're extending each of those with the reset class. And then uh, since, you're, since you're starting from scratch with both of them, you don't have to worry about what the other one is saying. You just totally refresh it. I don't know if that, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but it's only, that, it's only really useful um, when you're not making, when you're making like major changes, because if you have component A and you have component B, and the only difference between component A and component B, with like the profile card, is a featured star, <laughs> then you're not going to want to reset all the styles, obviously. Um, but when you're doing like a timeline, right, and you want to change the horizontal to vertical layout, you want to add 
You want to make, you know, it just, all the children display black, then it might make more sense. So anyways, I'm kind of rambling now. I don't think this is actually a podcast anymore. This is just David's random thoughts. But I'm going to keep going anyways. Hopefully I'll get better with time. Um, so, why did I bring this up? Well, the reason I brought this up is I thought it was a really good example of what I'm going for. Because normally with CSS, you're really careful about what you're changing and how you're changing it and little slight modifications. And you want to make sure you're overriding the right uh, attributes on the CSS so that you're getting exactly the style you're looking for. And on one, what I'm saying is instead of that, just delete. Delete everything and start from scratch. And then you can... Uh, and then you can just duplicate whatever code you wrote before. <laughs> and this is a principle that goes against uh, do not repeat yourself, which is a common thing in, in programming in general, where you know if you already have written some code, you want to reuse that code as often as, you, as possible so that you don't have to, like that's the whole point of computers, right? The whole point of computers is that if you already wrote something once, like if you wrote like your resume once, you can send it to multiple people by, uh, you know, attaching that to an email and then attaching it to an email again. Or if you want to create a new resume for a different job, you can copy the original file, duplicate it, right? And then, uh, and then, you know, use it for the new resume as kind of a template. And so the whole point of like programming is that, or like in programming is that if you have like a function or you have like a, a web page, if you're, you know, if you have like a profile page and you have the name of the user and the, and the profile photo, you can reuse that same template for another user. Um, so you usually don't want to rewrite stuff. What I'm saying is that who cares about all that? <laughs> like, if it makes it easier, if you don't have to go back and forth uh, looking at the other class that you created because you just totally resetted, you, you totally reset everything and all the properties inside of the new class. If you don't have to go back and forth and look at that old class and make sure that you're resetting specific properties, that's going to save you a lot of time. If you don't have to worry about um, in the future when you're changing that class, if you're affecting something somewhere else, that's huge. So while there are benefits to uh, deduplication, to like keeping things really simple and not repeating yourself, there's also a huge benefit to repeating yourself. Because when you repeat yourself, you create a new instance of something that's independent of everything else. So you don't have to uh, uh, you don't have to worry about it affecting some other thing that um, you know is way over you know some on some other page. You know, like if you're editing a button on your login form, you don't want to worry about it affecting a button on your uh, on your profile edit form. Uh, so, and I mean. <laughs> That's not exactly true because 
if you have any kind of consistency on your, on your website, you definitely do want your buttons to look relatively the same, right? So it's kind of a trade-off, right? What I'm talking about is definitely a trade-off, but I guess what I'm trying to say is instead of creating a 50-page web app, <laughs> create a three-page web app and create the button from scratch every time. Um, and I guess I'm not trying to say, you know, you should definitely be that extreme because that's kind of crazy. You already have a button, reuse it, right? <laughs> but I am saying that there is some benefit to thinking about just recreating that button every time. I'm not saying you should do it. I'm not saying it's ever a good idea for such a simple component to be recreated every time especially when consistency matters in web apps. But I am saying that it is worth thinking about, and at some point, at some point up the component tree, it does make sense in my book to just recreate it. So like, you can have a profile component and you can have a, a I don't know, like a, if you're having a dog walking service, you can have a dog profile component, and you can try to make those components so general that you can use the person profile component as the dog profile component, and you can reuse them, and you can have the dog photo in there, and you can have the dog date of birth in there, and then you can have the person date of birth in there, and the, and the person gender in there, and whatever. And then you can reuse that for the dog, and whatever, and it's all just cross-available, and you can just, you know, have infinite reusability. But I'm saying at some point in the component tree, components get complicated enough that it just makes sense to just recreate them. And I'm saying that when you're first starting out, when you're first building a business, when you're trying to figure out the market, it makes a lot more sense to just recreate every time and not worry about consistency so much. And that might mean that some customers might say, hey, this button's not the same as that button, or, you know, more likely, you know, the spacing really looks off on this page, and, and like, you know, it just looks like a crap page that was just thrown together. I'm not gonna sign up for this untrustworthy service. You know, it's a serious concern, right? If you make a, a web page that doesn't look that great, people aren't gonna trust you. But on the other hand, if you build something that works, that does something, that takes a user from point A to point B, that is infinitely more important than whether you recreated that button or you recreated that profile component or not. So anyways, that's my thought about that. So basically the reset class is just an example <laughs> of just saying, um, you know, maybe it's okay to just wipe everything out and start from scratch on every page or on every component or on every button or whatever, right? So that's one example. The other thing I wanna talk about is data. So data in web apps Sorry if that was a lot. Sorry if that was, you know, kind of hard to understand. But a lot of this is just me getting my thoughts out. I know it doesn't really feel like a real podcast yet, but we'll get there. 
Um, maybe uh, 50 episodes from now I will start editing it. But for now, it's just good to just get my thoughts out there. And I've always wanted a podcast. To be honest, I've always wanted a podcast where it's just like a developer just kind of shooting the shit, you know? Just like talking about whatever and not really caring about, you know, best practices um, or like the right way, (laughs) trademark, (laughs) to do things. Right, because like you know, there's idiomatic React and there's idiomatic Vue.js and there's idiomatic Ruby on Rails, and like, I like yeah, I love learning the right way to do things, especially if it's going to make things easier in the long run, which it usually does, right? However, in terms of like creative thinking, I don't feel like I get enough of that. I don't feel like I get enough uh, input into my brain that is like. There, this is the, here's this different way of doing something. And so I'm creating this podcast in a, in, with the goal of kind of creating more of that for myself, like a space where I can explore those ideas. And also maybe at some point encourage other people to, um, to do that too, so that I can listen to them, you know, uh, shoot the, uh, shoot the breeze a phrase. But I, yeah, let's just use it. Shoot the breeze. So shoot the breeze about development stuff. So that they can say stuff like, oh, what if we just had this class that reset a component every time I <laughs> created a new one so that I had to rebuild it from scratch. I mean, that's kind of a crazy idea, right? I don't know. So anyways, um, my other thing I wanted to talk about, and I'm getting pretty low on battery. I'm at 16%. I wish it last me another 15 minutes, 20 minutes at least. Um, so I want to talk about data. So a lot of the time with a web app, uh, let's, let's, um, let's talk about like a, a real example because I think that'll give us some basis to, um, to ex- explain what I'm talking about. So Let's say you have like a, uh, a dog walking meetup service. So um, basically, basically you have a, uh, a dog walkers on the platform and they, um, they put in like the location that they're gonna go to and then other dog walker, walking people can also go to that location and, you know, they can say they're going to that location or they can just uh, show up, right? It's kind of a cool service, uh, very maps focused, I guess. But for now, we'll just say it's, it's like a local service. So it's mostly based just in your city and you actually just put in a real physical address. So there's no map, even though it'd be 100% better with a map. For now, it just, it just has a physical address like typed out. Um, Okay, and so you're gonna need some kind of profile, maybe have like a profile for your dog and the type of dog it is. You know, because I don't know, I actually don't know if certain types of dogs don't get along with each other, but maybe that's the case, you know? Maybe if like, (laughs) maybe if if you're walking your wolf, your wolf in the the park, (laughs) then you don't wanna, then other people might wanna steer clear of that park. Um, so, yeah, so you have a little profile for the dog. Uh, 
you know, and you can say like whether it's friendly or not or whatever, and you have a little picture of uh, the two of you having fun as the dog's profile picture. And then you have like the location you're going today, the location you went to yesterday, and the location you're planning to go tomorrow. Okay, so with all that, let's talk about like relationships. So usually in a, in a web app, in the data, you have relationships. So um, in this web app, you have a dog walker and you have multiple dogs. Uh, and the, you know, multiple dogs can belong to a dog walker. And then you have, um, I guess, like the uh, dogs, each dog can be- belong to multiple dog walkers. So like, let's say like Fred walks, uh, walks, uh, I guess I'm going to make up people names for these dogs. Let's say all of the walkers are going to be Oh man, all of the walkers are going to start with A names and all of the dogs are going to start with B names. And this is just to keep it simple for me in my head. So Aaron is going to walk uh, Bridget um, and uh, (laughs) Alex is going to walk Bianca. Okay, so you, I don't, I already forgot them. Anyways, A1 is gonna walk B1, and B and A2 is gonna walk B2. Um, so, uh, yeah, so B2 could be walked by, uh, you know, B, uh, A2 on, I'm really sorry about this. Okay, okay. So Alex and Bianca and Aaron and Bridget. So Aaron can walk Bridget on Monday, but then he can walk Bianca on Tuesday, right? So the dog can, can like be with a new uh, dog walker on different days. That's the only point I'm trying to make with that whole side note. Jeez. Okay. So anyways, um, yeah, so they can be walked by different people on different days. Um, that's all I wanted to say. So if you... Uh, so that's a, another relationship, right? So you can switch over the relationship. And then, um, let's see, you have like locations. And the location can be uh, different every day. It could be the same every day. So you might want to like have the ability to like duplicate a relationship, uh, I, I mean a location. And then you also might want to, um, I don't know, like how would you... How would you make a relationship between a person and a place? Uh, I guess you wouldn't, you wouldn't really. I mean, like, I guess like you'd have some kind of activity feed or places feed and that that would belong to a a person and it would belong to a dog. And then inside of that, you would have the, uh, the locations every day. And then like, I guess the location could be standard, right? Because you might want to duplicate it from a previous day. That's like when you're on Grubhub or whatever, like a food ordering service, and they ask you, do you want to order the same order as before? And then they duplicate that order. You know, it's kind of same thing with places. In this app, you might want to duplicate it. And so, um, so we, we usually have like some pretty deep data, right? Because you have your dog walker profile, and then you have multiple dogs that can flow in and out of that, right? Multiple dogs on one day, 
different dogs on different days, uh, different dogs at different times, right? And then you have the places which kind of, you know, bring together the dogs and the dog walkers. And you could even have like meetings, right? So it could be like the, the bi-weekly, uh, what is the type of dog? Dachshund? Uh, uh, bi-weekly Dachshund meetup, meet right? And it could be at the neighborhood park, you know, 114, uh, you know, Chestnut Street or whatever. <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of relationships in there. And my idea, <laughs> as far as data goes, is what if all of the data was shallow? <laughs> and I think this is a, a pretty um, brilliant and terrible idea. <laughs> I think it pretty much doesn't, doesn't work. But I just want to explore it because I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And I think it does make it easier to develop web apps. So what do I mean by a shallow web app? Well, I mean like what if there were no relationships and uh, <clears throat> pretty much uh, there's just data, right? So you just have a dog represented by, you know, an object. You know, they have a name, they have a profile image, they have whatever. And then when you are walking that same dog the next day, you're actually not walking the same dog. <laughs> you are walking a copy of that dog, according to the data, okay? I'm not saying, I'm not trying to, um, <laughs> uh, what do you call it, um, fudge around with your conception of reality. You know, I mean, even though if, you know, it's been long enough and the dog's eaten, you know, and they've shed, you know, skin and, and, uh, and they've shed fur, you know, how much of that dog really is the same dog anymore? Um, <laughs> I'm not really talking along those lines. I'm talking more along the lines of um, uh, just the data in the web app. <laughs> so, you know, you have the name of the dog, you have the profile image, you know, whatever. And then what if you're saying, oh, okay, yeah, I'm walking um, Bridget again today so you click on that button that says you know I don't know what, is it, what does it say like walk Bridget or claim maybe it's claim Bridget or something but we'll just say it says walk Bridget and so you click on that button and all it does is it copies all of Bridget's details from yesterday into this new dog today and so there's no real relationship there you're just copying data and so then uh, what about the meetup Right? What about the bi-weekly meetup? Well, for that, it would just be manual. If you're if you're creating a um, if you're creating a web app that's you know a MVP minimum viable product, if it's just the first version of the web app, make that uh, manual. So you have the meetup from two weeks ago. You realize it's coming up in a couple days. Uh, you know, what it would do is maybe it would show you a, a reminder on the front end, you know? So on the front end, you would, you would detect that it says it happens every two weeks, and then you remind that person to create a new event. Or maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't even have the ability to set that it happens every two weeks. Maybe you would have to have the user go into a calendar and click two weeks from now, and then two weeks from then, and then two weeks from then, and so on and so forth, creating individual calendar events. 
And I know that might sound like a lot of work, but I guarantee you that people have done a lot more work for a lot less results in their lives. So uh, you don't have to really worry about that, especially with the first version of a web app. Um, people are used to, I mean, they're not used to, but like they, they don't, it's not like a super big deal, especially in the beginning, if you have to uh, inconvenience them a little bit, you know, like they're getting some value from having this dog walking social meetup service. So, you know, if they have to go in and for the first month or two or three or six or whatever, until you add the feature for real, if for that amount of time they have to go into the calendar and actually plan out the meetings manually, whatever. And so then that way you save yourself from having to create this, uh, <clears throat> these like deeply nested kind of data structures where, oh, this thing is a meeting and it means that, you know, like it can be scheduled and when it's scheduled, it means that I'm going to run this, you know, scheduled job that, you know, recreates it this many weeks in advance. And if they're looking at the calendar, you know, two years in advance, I still have to make sure it shows up on the calendar. You know, it's a big hassle, right? It's a big job to do that. I mean, I'm always impressed by Google Calendar whenever I look at it. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, this, this event happens once a week, every week, and you know, you look three years in the future and the event's still there. And I, I really don't know how they do that because I know Google really cares about scale and everything. Are they really creating that event? Or do they have some front end rule that just shows it? Um, I mean, I guess they don't, there's, there's arguments for both ways, right? Because if you have another calendar app that's gonna interface with Google Calendar, um, you kind of need the event to really be there, right? It needs to be a real thing. So I don't know. It's a lot to build. You know, if you're talking about rebuilding Google Calendar, it's a lot to build, especially when you're talking about rebuilding Google Calendar for a dog walking social meeting platform. It's like, yeah, maybe once you get $50 million in funding, but even then probably not, right? Like even then there's probably things you could spend money on you know, better. You're going to spend like, what, $2 million reinventing, you know, Google Calendar, if not more, right? Uh, when you could just be, um, you know, throwing like, like for $2 million, you could throw probably like 50 different sponsored dog walking events with like free treats and like celebrities or whatever. I mean, maybe not like major celebrities, but maybe like I don't know, the like famous neighborhood dog celebrity, right? I don't know. Anyways, just a thought. Um, so shallow data, the idea there is that there's no, I mean, if you're in Ruby on Rails or you're in Laravel, I think it's pretty easy. Sorry, I'm gonna pause for a second. Just let that truck go by. So I think if you're in a framework like that, I think it's actually pretty easy to create relationships between the data. But my idea is that, okay, what if there is very few relationships? Like what if it's mostly shallow data? It's mostly just like the data on the page is the data on the page. And this goes back to an earlier idea of mine, which I'm gonna go through now. I went through in another video 
in a different, you know, podcast type thing. But my idea was that what if a web app was just an HTML page? What if that's all a web app was? Was just HTML and you would just save that HTML when the user modified it. So um, the idea would be, okay, you could build a to-do list, right? And you could have a button that would, on the front end, uh, create a new to-do list item from a front end template. And so you would have uh, you know, the to-do list, you'd have a list item, list item, list item, and then you click a button and it add another list item to that, to the bottom of those three list items. And then you could type in whatever you wanted, click save, and then the save button would modify the HTML to add that new, the text of the new list item to the HTML. And, um, and then that HTML is just the web app. So if you, uh, you know, if you click save on that to-do item, it's not just saving that one to-do item. It's, it's sending all of the HTML of the entire page up to the server. And I, I know what you're thinking. You're like, what? This is crazy. What are you talking about? This is insane. Why would you ever do that? That is a crazy, crazy thing to do. That's, no, don't do that. Don't ever do that. <laughs> um, but I think it, it kind of makes sense. So hear me out. First of all, um, usually the HTML of a website isn't that big. Usually it's like, I don't know, maybe 50 or 100 kilobytes. So it's not that big. It's not that much data to send. And it doesn't actually take that long to get the inner HTML of the, you know, the body element or whatever to send up to the server. So it's not, as far as performance goes, it's not that big of a deal, especially if it's a simple to-do app. All right, if we're talking about a simple to-do app, we're talking about sending maybe 10 or 20 kilobytes up to the server. Maybe, right? Probably more like three or four. So if that's the case, what's the difference between sending, you know, a JSON object and, uh, you know, sending the HTML itself? Well, you might say the data and the relationships, and you'd be right. Because when you're just saving the HTML, you have no idea what the data is. You have no idea what the relationships are. But I think it's a, it's a decent idea nonetheless. I think it's an interesting idea, especially when you're just getting started. Imagine being able to prototype a web app where all you had to do was create an HTML page, and in that HTML page, you had to give the user, the, you know, the editor of that page, the ability to modify the HTML. And, you know, you'd also have to keep track of whether they were logged in or not, but, you know, that's the same across every web app, right? So if they're logged in and they own that page, they're able to modify it. That's the same as any other web app out there. The difference is that instead of uh, doing input validation on the back end, instead of, you know, handling data coming to the server on the back end, all you're doing is you're globbing up all of the HTML and throwing it in the database. And when the user loads the page the next time, you're just sending them the, the HTML that they saved. And it's really bad for some web apps, right? Because, I mean, even if you clean the HTML, even if you make sure there's no script tags in there, 
even if you have a content security policy on your site, there might still be nefarious things that they can do. You know, like they could redesign the entire web page to look like a Google sign-in, and then all of a sudden you're hosting a web page that infringes on Google's copyright <laughs> and uh, also might be used for like phishing. Uh, P-H-I, P-H, I don't know. I don't know how to spell it. Phishing, but just basically faking out users to think that you're Google, right? And that would be bad. So what kind of web app is this good for? It's good for private web apps. So for like a private to-do list, this would be perfect. For a, um, for like a, a website builder, it's pretty good because if you're allowing people to edit you know, HTML and JavaScript on your website builder anyways, they're gonna be able to create whatever they want. So why not just actually give them, you know, access to the full HTML? The other thing you could do with this uh, idea is, um, is actually validate the structure of the HTML. So instead of, Instead of saving the entire body of the page, you could wrap the you know application part of the uh, of the you know HTML in like an ID, you know, just like Vue.js or React does, right? Where you target a certain ID on the page. So you could just send that HTML up to the server and just get back that kind of HTML from the server, and you could have some kind of parser on the server side that would validate that the HTML that was sent was in a certain structure or only contained certain types of items. So if you're building a to-do list app and you only want you know, divs and list item elements uh, in that HTML, you could you know, send that app container HTML up to the server, validate that it's only that, and then send it back down. And so that's an idea of basically how to create a really, really, really powerful prototyping service um, with very shallow data. So it's actually, the, <laughs> the data is so shallow in that case that it's approaching zero. It's pretty much non-existent. Now there are ideas around that too. If you add certain classes or IDs to your page, you could actually use some, uh, you know, headless browser on the server to use the web page as a database, right? I mean, this, that, that idea is pretty out there, but um, <clears throat> I think I read that somewhere uh, when people were talking about something similar. But uh, yeah, so you could load up the website on the server and then instead of setting a database query, you could say like, you know, hash app, which would stand for the ID app, and then you could put in, you know, like li for list item, and then you could say like uh, nth of nth of type, which is the uh, CSS selector for for getting um, the element, uh, you know, but of, of of a certain type at a certain number, and then you could pass in like three, and I think that would give you like the third list item, and so basically you'd be using CSS selectors um, as a uh, uh, as a database query. Okay, so 
I actually got to go. That's all I have time for now. There's only five seconds left. Uh, thanks for checking this out. I'll be on again, and we can talk more about building 50% web apps. Bye.